chapter 4 and have that passage open as we come to study the first 16 verses of that chapter together today. Genesis chapter 4 and verses 1 to 16. And our theme today is a brother's blood. A brother's blood. A couple of months ago our news was dominated for several nights by the shocking murder of 23-year-old Ashleen Murphy, a hard-working, much-loved primary school teacher from County Offaly in the Republic. There was widespread disgust and anger and that this bright young woman was attacked by a coward hiding along her jogging route uh, who uh, took her life. But I was struck by something else about the story, about the, the, uh, about the coverage of the story, a theme that was developed by the mainstream media uh, and it was a theme that also developed uh, this time last year when a woman named Sarah Everard was murdered in London. And that was this whole narrative of the need to end what some people have begun calling gendered violence or to end violence against women at the hands of men. Now, of course, there is no denying that there is something perhaps particularly despicable about men attacking women in the sort of cowardly ways that have been happening uh, these last couple of years. But what often happens in our culture today is that these extra labels are put on whatever crimes particularly disgust us. And those extra labels suggest that if we could just stop this one particular problem, uh, then it seems like all other problems would just go away. And so in the wake of the Everard and Murphy murders, the suggestion was if we could somehow educate men if we could force men to go through certain programs or penalize men for certain words or actions that stop short of any actual physical crime, then we could forever end violence against women. These kinds of reactions ignore the simple truth that within all of us is a sinful heart by nature. People want to explain the, the dreadful murders and, and the war crimes that take place today. They want to find factors or feelings in society uh, that brought these things about. But the truth is, friends, that those things happen not because the offenders lack education or they've been brainwashed or because they've been born into poverty, but because within all of us by nature, rich or poor, black or white, male or female, there is a sinful heart. And that's what Genesis 3 and 4 is at pains to prove to us. Genesis 3, of course, shows us Adam and Eve falling into sin, disobeying God's express commands. As a result, their relationship with God is ruined. Their, their marriage with one another is ruined to a great extent. And even their relationship with creation is ruined. And as we move on into Genesis 4 today, we are east of Eden Paradise has been lost and we wonder what's going to come next. How far reaching will the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin really be? Will it really be as bad as we might fear? Well, Genesis 4 quickly shows us just how bad it is. It shows us that we have all inherited a sinful human heart. Maybe there are things that you would like to inherit from your parents a good work ethic, their patience, perhaps the way they deal with particular problems. Maybe there's some treasured family possession that you're hoping you'll be the one that it's passed down to. 
Maybe we hope sometimes that we'll not inherit certain things from our parents' quirks or foibles. Well, Genesis 4 shows us that we have all inherited a sinful nature from our first parents. We read earlier the words of Paul, Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Genesis 4 gives us the indisputable evidence for this by telling us the tragic story of two brothers, the first two brothers, and what happened between them. But the story is not just about the two brothers. It's about God and how he responds to sin, how he deals with sin, even how he can provide rescue from sin. I want to think, first of all today, about the brothers' worship, and that's brothers' plural, the brothers' worship. And we see in the brothers' worship that one was accepted and the other rejected. The brothers' worship accepted and rejected. Despite Adam and Eve's sin, God continues to bless them in many ways, and in particular, They're blessed with the arrival of two children. Two sons are born to them, Cain and Abel. Cain becomes a farmer producing crops. Abel becomes a shepherd. He keeps flocks and herds. And both professions were perfectly good. They they together actually uh, bring out the the, uh, what's called sometimes the cultural mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve to fill the earth and and to cause the earth to flourish and work the ground and cultivate it and rule over the creatures. (coughs) And both the jobs that these two men did reflect uh, that that was what human beings were supposed to be doing. So there's nothing wrong with the brothers' work, but there is a fundamental difference in the brothers' worship. Look at verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, (coughs) And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Just notice in passing, friends, that the brothers both knew that they should bring an offering to God. Uh, Well before God gave his written law to Moses, long before that, Cain and Abel knew the principle of sacrificial worship. How do they know this? Well, John Calvin and many other commentators suggest a very simple answer, because their father, Adam, told them about it. You remember what happened in Genesis 3 after God dealt with the sin of Adam and Eve? (coughs) Yes, they were disciplined and punished in some measure for it, but God also clothed Adam and Eve. He clothed them with the skins of dead animals. And so a sacrifice was made for Adam and Eve to have their shame covered and to continue to have some relationship with God at least. And likely Adam taught his sons that this is how God must be approached. Sacrifice is needed in the worship of God. But there is drastic difference between the worship of these two brothers. God had regard For Abel and his sacrifice were told. And just note that Abel and his sacrifice. But not for Cain and his sacrifice. Uh, The phrase had regard could also be translated looked with favor. Looked with favor. In other words Abel and his sacrifice were pleasing, acceptable to God. But Cain and his sacrifice were not. 
Some of the older commentators suggested that God accepted Abel and his offering because Abel brings an animal sacrifice and Cain only brings some of his crops. But I don't think that's right because eventually when God gave the law through Moses, uh, the people were commanded at certain times to bring offerings of, uh, of their crops, the first fruits of their crops to God. And so the fruit of the land was oftentimes an acceptable kind of offering to bring. Other writers focus on the fact that verse 4 specifically says that Abel brought to God from the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions, whilst Cain, we're told, simply brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. And so the, the implication may be that Abel brought the very best of what he had to give, the firstborn with the fat portions, but Cain just brought whatever he had, the first thing he saw. Uh, perhaps not the first fruits and perhaps not the very best. But whatever the case, friends, Hebrews 11 verse 4 tells us exactly what the crucial difference was between the two brothers. By faith, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, Hebrews says, through which he was commended as righteousness. So we have to take all of that together, not just the uh, particulars of the sacrifice, but the faith that moved Abel to bring that sacrifice in the first place. That was what made the difference, Hebrews says. That's what was missing from Cain. He did not come in faith. Abel came gladly, humbly, trusting in the grace and mercy of God, knowing that nothing about him would ever be acceptable to God, but believing by faith that God would accept him with his sacrifice. Cain, on the other hand, came grudgingly, reluctantly, maybe only out of a sense of duty that this is well, this is what my father says we're supposed to do when it comes to worshiping God. And so God saw two very different hearts when Abel and Cain brought their sacrifices. Elsewhere, Scripture says, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. As God looked at the heart of Abel, he saw someone who wanted a relationship with him and believed by faith that a costly sacrifice being provided would be a token of the faith that he had in his heart, aware of God's holiness, aware of God's perfection, aware of his own sin. Cain was full of resentment and pride and perhaps self-righteousness as he brought his sacrifice to God. And so here's the challenge for us, the first challenge from this story today, friends. When God looks at our hearts, what does he see? What does he see as he looks at your heart this morning? You've been singing the same words as everyone else. You've been listening or at least appear to be listening to the same prayers and readings from scripture you're politely sitting quietly now as the preacher speaks but what about your heart is it full of glad thankful faith in the god who has provided a way for sin to be forgiven or are you only here because you think it'll make up for the next few days of your life in which you will have no desire to worship god to know god to speak to god to obey god The example of Cain should be proof enough to us, friends, that many, there are many things in which we cannot and should not rely upon to consider ourselves acceptable to God, righteous before him. 
Boys and girls, Cain had godly parents who taught him about God and the need to worship him. Preachers and commentators are virtually unanimous that Adam and Eve, despite their terrible fall into sin, they lived lives of faith afterwards. And Cain and Abel knew of their duty to approach God in the first place because their father had taught them. But boys and girls, just because your parents love God doesn't mean that God automatically accepts you into heaven. You must love him yourself and gladly worship him and serve him yourself in the ways that your parents have taught you and shown you. Cain also shows us that merely working hard at a, a good job does not save you from your sins. Merely living a respectable life, going through the motions of religious worship as so many in our country do today, does not save you from your sins. It is faith that is, makes us acceptable to God. Faith not in ourselves, but in him. Galatians 2 verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. By works of the law, no one will be justified. God doesn't want stuff from us. He doesn't want or need our money or our time or anything else. He wants us. He wants your heart, your life and every part of it in submission to him. He has graciously sent the Lord Jesus Christ as the final sacrifice. The one who took the punishment that our sin deserved so that you could enjoy life with God in obedience to his word. When we truly understand what God has done for us through Christ, then faith in him and worship of him is a delight. It's not just a duty. It's not drudgery. We gladly come and worship him. We gladly live each day for his glory. And we gladly see our work or our finances or our family or our witness as ways to offer acceptable service to him. Again, as with Abel, those things are brought to God with faith behind them and faith motivating them. What about you today? How do you approach this holy God? Are you filled with faith? Or are you filled with resentment? An empty sense of duty? Or even just a sense of fear? So the brothers worship accepted and rejected. Secondly, let's think about one brother's wickedness. One brother's wickedness. Look what God says to Cain at the end of verse 7. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. This is actually the first time that the word sin is used in the Bible. God here warns Cain that sin is like a dangerous animal waiting to pounce, waiting to strike. And everything about this passage, friends, is designed to show us that this is the impact of the fall. This is the impact of sin entering the world. A couple of things about this passage that emphasize that to us. First of all, notice with me in this passage the pattern that sin follows. The pattern that sin follows. Just as in Genesis 3, sin begins as a desire in Cain's heart. Look at verse 5. It says, Cain was very angry. The language there is intense. This is intense anger. Fury is bubbling up in Cain. And that's what God warns him about in verse 7. Sin is crouching at your door. 
There, there's a desire within you that you need to get under control right away. Just as Eve saw the fruit of the tree and desired it, so it is with Cain. He killed Abel in his heart before he killed him with his hands. And then, as we, con- as we continue to think about the pattern of sin, desire gives way to action. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. See how quickly the text describes it. Just as his mother Eve saw, took, ate, and gave to Adam. Just as quickly Cain saw Abel, took his life, buried him in the ground. There are also similarities in how God responds to sin in both chapters 3 and 4. Chapter 3 verse 9, God called out to Adam after Adam and Eve had attempted to hide from God. And God asked Adam, where are you? And similarly in chapter 4 verse 9, God says to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And as well, God on both occasions, both to Adam and Eve, asks, what have you done? Both to Adam and Eve and to Cain, what have you done? Where is Abel? What have you done? It's not that God doesn't know the answer to these questions, but he's confronting Cain with his sin. Consider Cain's response. I don't know. Where is Abel, your brother? I don't know. A total lie. Again, as quick as you like. Came naturally to Cain because of his sin. I don't know. And then as well, there's the attempt at blame shifting, just as with as there was with his mother and father. Cain says, Am I my brother's keeper? The word keeper there is the same word used to describe Abel earlier, a keeper of sheep. Cain thinks he's being funny. Does the keeper need a keeper? Can the, the boy who looks, who looks after sheep not look after himself? Just like his parents, Cain tries to shift blame, and yet he does so in an even more horrible way than his parents did, mocking his brother, arrogantly trying to shift blame. See, friends, sin always follows a familiar pattern regardless of the particulars of the, the actual sin itself. James sums it up this way, James chapter 1, verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. One sin leads to another and another and another And in talking earlier about violence against women, one thing that perhaps is not talked about enough is that uh, in a growing number of convicted murderers, particularly men who have murdered women, many of them became addicted to pornography when they were far younger. Pornography rewires your brain. It demands more and more graphic and eventually violent content to be consumed to the point where that desire has to be physically acted upon. One sin leads to another. And make no mistake, it wasn't just the desire for physical murder that was working on Cain. There were all kinds of sins churning around in Cain by the time he actually laid hands on Abel. 
He was jealous, no doubt. I want what my brother has. Acceptance. And that jealousy, no doubt, led to bitterness and exaggeration in Cain's mind. Abel's the golden boy. Everybody loves him. Everyone's against me. Friends, do you see this morning the danger in allowing what you would call our our little sins to fester in our hearts? The damage that they can do when they snowball into greater and greater sins. Resentment of a family member. Jealousy of a friend or a colleague. Anger when we don't get our way. Hateful thoughts. Whether we act upon them or not, they are sins that we must not let crouch at the door. The pattern that sin follows. And then the other thing to notice about uh, one brother's wickedness here is the separation that sin creates. A separation that sin creates. Adam and Eve's sin in Genesis 3 separated them in a sense at least temporarily from one another, uh, from the rest of creation and of course from God. They were literally driven away from the presence of God. Genesis 3:24. God drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherry beam and a flaming sword. And that sense of, that that separation, that sense of distance only increases in chapter 4. Look at verse 16. (coughs) Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And so Cain goes even further away from uh, that paradise, that place of God's special presence and dwelling. He goes even further. And the the language here means that he's turning his back upon God in a sense. There's separation between him and his God. Cain becomes a wanderer. He loses everything. His family, his livelihood, his sense of belonging. Some of you here perhaps lived on the same piece of land all your life. And and you've gladly done so. Maybe you're farming the same land that your father or grandfather farmed. It's where you feel you belong. And that sense of belonging is something that many human beings cherish. We, we cherish our roots. We cherish the place we live and spend our lives. Cain lost that sense of belonging. He's condemned to be a wanderer, verse 12, for the rest of his life. And he protests about this to God. In verse 14 he says, Whoever finds me will kill me. He's full of a sense of insecurity. The murderer thinks that he himself might end up murdered. And that's another consequence of sin, of course, isn't it? (coughs) Sin promises security, contentment. If I just get that or get that person. But it leaves us insecure, isolated and afraid. The pattern that sin follows, the separation that sin creates. One brother's wickedness, friends. Look at the damage that it did. And it's the same damage that any of our own temptations and sins could do, friends, if we let them. Just look at the state our world is in today. It's as restless, it's as insecure, it's as angry as Cain. In many ways, human beings around us are wandering. Wandering, as I mentioned, into pornography or other forms of sexual sin. Wandering towards possessions, hoping that the next purchase will do the trick. Wandering into angry online conversations. 
and sin is crouching at the door and it's separating them from the security and the contentment that comes through faith in Christ and fellowship with God. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Ukrainians right now are literally wandering around their country or trying to leave their country altogether because of the brutal violence being brought against them. The sin of Cain on an international scale. What about you today? Is there sin crouching at your door or mine? Boys and girls, how do you respond when your brother or sister asks to share a toy or play a different game than what you want to play? Do you get angry and snatch and push and shove? Adults, do we allow anger to fester over some silly mistake someone made in work or some pattern of what seems disrespect or lack of care that we've been shown by someone else? Do we murder in our hearts something that the Lord Jesus taught about and warned us against? 1 John 3.12, this is the verse on the, on the sheet for the children today. We should not be like Cain, who is of the evil one and murdered his brother. Instead, Hebrews 10, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Speaking, of course, of the sacrifice of Christ, the faith that is needed to overcome sin. So we've thought about the brother's worship. We've thought about one brother's wickedness. And finally, and more briefly, want us to think about another brother's promise. Another brother's promise. The word brother appears seven times in this passage. In many ways, it's the key word in the story, unsurprisingly. Uh, Look at Eve's response. Uh, This is interesting, though. If you look at Eve's response to Cain's arrival, chapter 4, verse 1, she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And that's an interesting choice of words from Eve. As far as I'm aware, it's the only time in Scripture that a newborn baby is immediately described as a man rather than as a son. So any of you who have had a little baby boy born to you, I don't think you'd have said, we've just had a man born to us. You know, you've had a, a newborn baby born. Why does Eve describe Cain that way? Well, quite possibly it was a statement of faith by Eve. Remember Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, this is God speaking to to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring, her offspring singular. That is to say, one man, one descendant of Adam and Eve will come and he will crush the head of the serpent even if the serpent manages to bruise his heel. There was God's promise, friends, that one son, one saviour would come from Eve to destroy the devil and undo his damage. And when Cain is born, Eve is perhaps expressing her hope, maybe this is the man, maybe this will be the fulfillment of God's promise. Now, of course, that wasn't the case with Cain. Instead of destroying Satan, he destroys his brother. The first child born into the world becomes a murderer. The first brother born into the world becomes a victim. And the scandal of this is stressed in chapter 4, verse 10, when God says to Cain, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. 
There's God's justice, friends. There's his perfect knowledge of all things. No blood can be shed on this planet that God doesn't see. It screams out to him. It demands justice from him. Northern Ireland is a place where the word justice is never far from the headlines. The legacy of the trouble, so-called, is extremely dark. We have unsolved murder cases. We have constant demands for answers. And the reality is that often the authorities don't know where to start and they're not able to offer justice. But friends, be assured, God sees and God knows. No blood is ever shed that he doesn't know about and for which he will not demand an account, whether that's in Northern Ireland or the Ukraine or anywhere else. But nonetheless, the first son of Eve cannot be the serpent crusher because he gives in to the serpent's temptations himself and murders his brother. The second son born to Eve cannot be the serpent crusher either because his life is taken from him. Eve's faith is rekindled sometime later. If you look at chapter 4, verse 25, we'll think more about these words next week, God willing. <laughs> but she says in chapter 4, 25, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. The name Seth in the original sounds like the Hebrew word for appointed. And here at last, perhaps, Eve is again thinking, they had chosen, they appointed one, our saviour, another brother. Now, of course, as we know, Seth wasn't Eve's redeemer either. But through Seth's line, eventually Eve's redeemer did come. Jesus Christ, friends, was a son of Seth, ultimately a son of Eve. And he was a brother, not just to his biological siblings on earth, but our brother in the sense that he is fully human as we are, and yet without sin, our kinsman redeemer, to use the language of Ruth. And whereas Cain laughed off the idea of being his brother's keeper, Jesus willingly became our keeper, our shepherd our Savior. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And as the writer to the Hebrews says, chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does he mean by that? He's saying that Abel's blood cried out to God to punish, to bring vengeance and justice. Jesus' blood cries out to God and says, it is finished. Abel's was the blood of a victim. Jesus was the blood of a sacrificial saviour. Those who believe in Jesus Christ, the greater brother, can be cleansed instead of punished, forgiven instead of condemned, brought near instead of driven away. Genesis 4.15 says that God put a mark on Cain so that people would keep away from him. And a lot of ink has been spilled on exactly what this mark was or what it meant. But it's safe to say, friends, that in part, this mark demonstrated God's extraordinary patience with Cain. God would have been justified in striking Cain down immediately for his sin. Instead, he lives with the consequences of it, yes, 
And he has to live with the guilt of it in a sense because we're never told that Cain confesses and, and asks and, and repents. But nonetheless, he lives with a reminder of the mercy and patience that he's been shown. And God protects him from ever experiencing the wickedness that he doled out to Abel. Friends, God has shown extraordinary grace, patience and mercy to us by sending us a brother to take the punishment that our sins deserve. And so today, let's be mindful of the sins that might crouch at our door and that might bring death, if not physical death, in the death of relationships, the death of a close walk with God. Let's be mindful, friends, that the seeds of those same sins can remain in our hearts. Let's consider whether we are living under God's judgment or under his grace. Will you, by faith, wholeheartedly worship God today in the name and by the blood of your greater brother, the Lord Jesus Christ? Amen.